I'm reading from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold, the goblets, that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote, his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought, and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the, voices of the, the voice of the king and of his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. This is the word of God. Thanks very much, Uche. Well, if you have a Bible uh, on your phones or a paper version, please do turn to Daniel chapter 5. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what it means. One of the themes that runs through this whole letter is the question, who will you live to honor? Who are you going to honor? And time and time again, we see that those people in positions of power are not honoring God, but are seeking honor for themselves. But conversely, we're presented with 
others who are seeking to honor God, and it's God who honors them. In 1971, on the 2,500th year anniversary of King Cyrus and the founding of the Persian Empire, the then Shah of Persia, now Iran, held what the Guinness Book of Records says is the grandest party, the most lavish party that there's ever been. Cyrus's desert grave was turned into an oasis by importing 15,000 trees and 15,000 flower plants. A tent city was constructed with 50 air-conditioned luxury apartments. There was a banquet hall. They built an 18-hole golf course. 50,000 songbirds were brought in to sing away and fill the skies with music. The catering was done by the then most famous restaurant in the world, Maxim's. They closed down Maxim's in Paris, and all the staff, all the chefs came. They imported the finest food from around the world. It was opulent, it was decadent, it was uber-magnificent. They had an ice cube the size of an Arctic lorry, just filling it so that their drinks could be cool. 250 new Mercedes limousines to drive important people to the party. An army of 65,000 troops surrounded the party for protection. It cost several billion, all for a party for three days for 600 guests. Meanwhile, over 50% of the nation lived in poverty. The guest list was the most prestigious ever assembled. Numerous kings, over 60 heads of state. And the king of Persia then, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi, was actually throwing a party to honor himself. It was on the occasion of uh, 2,500 years since Cyrus built his empire, but actually it was all about himself the then Shah. He took the title for himself, Shah and Shah, that means the King of Kings. And other titles that were given him, the Shadow of the Almighty, Light of the Aryans, Vice Regent of God, and the ever so humble, the Focus of the Universe. <laughs> it's true and his decadence and his abuse of his own people became a byword. And within a couple of years, it led to a coup. Uh, he became very ill. He was exiled in ignominy and dead within a couple of years. A party to honor 2,500 years of a Persian kingdom actually brought the Persian kingdom to an end. He sought to honor himself. That's a modern illustration of exactly what is happening here in this narrative. The first thing we see is that this king, Belshazzar, took a chance. In verse 1 to 4, he is swimming in the swill of his own pride. And he throws this uh, extravagant party for a thousand lords and ladies a-leaping. And he's celebrating 
himself and his own largesse. Belshazzar orders that these golden cups that we heard about last week, these golden cups that had been taken, ransacked from the temple in Jerusalem, built by Solomon, these golden cups should be brought, and they were filled with wine, and they drank from them. And then he adds insult to injury, not simply drinking from them, but he begins to toast these pagan idols and pagan gods of gold and silver and wood and wine. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and this man is a fool. You see, these cups were very special and very particular. They were utensils that were ordained created and consecrated for the worship of God, for the worship of Yahweh. Wine was poured into them, and then it was poured out before God on the altar. These were God's cups. This was a God for God to drink from. And Belshazzar is making himself like God. He's displacing God and putting himself in God's place. And he's desecrating the sacred, and this is sacrilege. It's blasphemy. Four times in the first four verses of chapter 5, it says, they drank, they drank, they drank, they drank. And I'm no teetotaler. Jesus wasn't. But it's clear that excess booze is a bit of a problem here for the fool Belshazzar. In fact, Professor Goldingay, a wonderful Old Testament scholar, says this, under the influence, madness. Under the influence, madness. And booze doesn't make Belshazzar forget himself. Booze shows us what is in himself. It actually removes the layers and the inhibitions, and we see what is there. We see what's in the man. What's in the man is just the man. It's all about the man. It's all about himself. And soon Humpty Dumpty's going to have a great fall. And all the king's men ain't going to put him together. But actually there's something more sinister even than his own pride here. There's something sinister going on. Because Jeremiah the prophet has said that the people of Judah are going to go into exile, but after 70 years, God will bring them back. He will restore them to the land. He will return them to their home. And they will restore and rebuild the temple. And once again, God will be honored in God's temple. The very reason they were in exile was because they hadn't honored God. It's all about honor, this book. And I wonder if the king, surely aware of this prophecy... Surely aware that somehow these cups were prophetic symbols that had been kept safe and treasured because at some point they were to be returned and used for the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. He thought, not on my watch. That isn't going to happen. I will keep them for myself. And I wonder if actually Belshazzar is withstanding, resisting prophecy. He's saying it's not going to happen. They're not going back. And God is not going to be worshipped. Instead, we'll worship my gods. I think he's saying by using these cups, I call the shots. The Jews will not be released 
These, these utensils will not be used to worship God in the temple anytime soon. It is the grossest hubris and pride. And the great irony, as we will see, is that actually Belshazzar's action will hasten and usher in the very fulfillment of the prophecy that he thinks he can withstand. You really don't want to mess with God. Secondly, the Lord takes the stage. Verse 5, suddenly, uh-oh, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appear and begin writing on the plaster of the wall and the king can see it, and so can everyone else. And it says his face goes pale and his knees begin to knock. What on earth is this? The writing on the wall is a common idiom that we all know. It's the title of numerous books, about 30 books I found with it as a title, a dozen movies, several dozen songs. In fact, it is the name for the soundtrack for the great Bond movie, Spectre the writing on the wall. But here's the thing, the, the God of Israel, the God of Jerusalem, the God whose glory dwells above the Ark of the Covenant or did. He's not some local, geographically uh, restricted and confined parochial, territorial God. It's the God in Jerusalem and he's the God in the king's palace in Babylon. He's everywhere. And he's the God who sees everything. And he's the God who has an opinion. And he's the God who has something to say on it. He sees this party in the king's dining hall. He hears what is being said. He's fully aware of what is going on. And he's got something to say about it. He sees the political machinations that are going on at the moment inside the Kremlin. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he's got something to say about it. And his arm is not too short, and it's not too limited to a distance out there in the ancient Near East. Make no mistake. And he sees inside your office. He sees inside your home. He sees inside your computer. Sees inside your bank account. He sees inside your heart. Sees inside your mind. He sees it all. And he's interested. He's not unconcerned about it. And he wants to speak into it. And what is it he's seeing? And what is it he's saying? We need to ask ourselves, Lord, what are you saying to me? What do you see and what do you say? Tell me. Search me and know me. There are two other times in the Bible where there is a picture of God's hand writing. The first is with the Ten Commandments, when the finger of God inscribes the summary of the law of God, pathways for life for the people of God, when he writes the law with his finger. The second is in the Gospels when we see Jesus and the Pharisees bring to him a woman who is caught in adultery and he goes down on the floor and he begins to write with his finger on 
the ground. And he says, you who is without sin. They, the Pharisees want, want him to approve of the stoning of this woman caught in adultery. He says, he begins writing, you without sin, you cast the first stone. And the oldest, leave, they all leave the oldest first, the ones with the longest list of sins. But what is he writing? I've wondered this week if he was writing mene, mene, tekel, pasin. What is he writing? Or is he writing grace before judgment? You see, it seems to me whenever the finger of God writes something, there's both judgment and grace that are being offered. And if we don't accept his grace, we'll face his judgment. American author Evan Bull writes, most of us can read the writing. We just think it's addressed to someone else. What's the writing on the wall? What is God writing on the wall of our country at this moment? What's he writing on the wall of your profession, your business, your college, your friendship group, your hobby, your family? Your ne- What's he writing? What's the writing on the wall? And always when he writes, there is judgment and there is grace. And if we refuse grace, there's judgment. And then thirdly, the prophet takes a stand. Verse 7, terrified, Belshazzar summons the magicians and they can't read the sign. Only God's people can interpret God's word. And it's Belshazzar's wife who then says, I I was thinking this week about Pilate's wife. She saw what was going on when Pilate didn't. Belshazzar's wife sees what's going on. And look at verse 11. She says, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy God in him. How about that? Wouldn't you like to be known like that? In the time of your forefather, probably his granddad, Nebuchadnezzar, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. That is an extraordinary testimony. Twice the wife of the pagan king recognizes and states that there's something in this man like the god. I think it's one of the most remarkable character references in Scripture. And then she says, call for Daniel. He will tell you what it means. How amazing is that? She knows that there's someone here who knows God and who can give the interpretation. Would that in our own contexts, our own communities, the different networks that we move in, that others would recognize that in you, was the spirit of the gods. And when they're faced with a problem, they say, call Anna. She'll know what to do. She'll know what. Call Susan. Call David. Call Peter. Call Sally. Call Rock. Call that. The spirit of God rests in them. And they'll tell us what to do. They'll tell us what it means. God wants us to be that kind of a person in the places we find ourselves, be it our colleges or schools or hospitals or businesses or families or neighborhood or bridge club or whatever it is. We're the people who stand out as as different. And in us is the spirit of the gods or God. Anyway, Daniel, the old man, is summoned. He's lived in obscurity for many years. He's an old man here, maybe 90 by this stage, and he's brought to the banquet hall 
And Belshazzar promises him power and wealth and status, and he'll be the third most important in the kingdom. After Belshazzar and the queen, it'll be him. But Daniel can't be bought. And he's not, he's a prophet, he's not a performing monkey. And he isn't going to sweeten the word of the Lord by being given a sweetener. But instead, he's going to speak truth to power. And it may prove costly, but honor is more important to him than death. It may prove costly, but he can stand before the king because he stands before God. He stands before an audience of one. And because he's accountable to God, he can speak prophetically to Belshazzar. You know, the tragedy that's unfolding in Ukraine is driven by Putin's hubris and pride. Bring, it's not bring me the golden cups, it's bring me Ukraine. And all around him are sycophants who just stroke him and say what he wants to hear. Why? Well, for fear or for personal gain. They want to drink at his table. And even officially the church, the Orthodox church, the patriarch of it, has backed Putin rather than been a prophet of the Lord and taken his moment to speak the truth, to speak up for the poor, for the gospel, and for those who are being oppressed. But then what an extraordinary thing last week. I don't know if you saw it, that Russian colonel. Did you see that on the news? Where he just told it straight. It was live, and they tried to shut him down. But this retired colonel, he spoke the truth about what was wrong with this campaign and why it was going to ultimately fail. We've got to speak the truth to power. And if and when we find ourselves in that position, pray that God would give us wisdom and intelligence like Daniel to know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. And we need to pray for others in the context that's unfolding on our screens for wisdom and the word of God to be spoken. Before Daniel interprets the omen and says what it means, he says why it's come. The leadership guru Simon Sinek, many of you will have watched his famous TED talk, he says you've got to know your why before your what. And before Daniel interprets and gives the what of this word, many, many tekel passing, what does it mean? He gives the why. Why has it come? And in verse 18 to 21, Daniel recounts the story of Belshazzar's granddad, Nebuchadnezzar, who fails to honor God, who's bloated with his own hubris, and whom God humbles, and he becomes like a donkey out in the wild, eating grass, drenched by the dew, for seven years until he honors God and is restored. And Belshazzar, Daniel says, has disregarded the story of his family. If he had only honored the story that had been written into his family, he would not be in the mess he's in. And then in verse 22 to 23, Daniel points the finger of God. And seven times it says in the text, you, 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 you. I mean, he really piles it on. He's fearless. You. It's not in the subjunctive. Maybe. <laughs> it's you. 
He says, you knew it about your father. It's translated father. It's probably his grandfather. You haven't humbled yourself. You've ignored this. You exalted yourself. You defiled sacred things. You honored idols. And then here's the crunch text, verse 23. And you have not honored God who holds your life in his hand. That's the key. And only then, having given the why, he then says what it means. And in verse 25, he interprets these four words, mene, mene, tekel, upasin. And all of these are, are to do terms related to measurements and weights. So there's the word, but we need the interpretation of the word, and the prophet brings it. And he says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom. He's brought it to an end. You have been weighed and found wanting. What a terrible thing that is. Imagine hearing that spoken over your life by God. You've been weighed. I've seen it all, and you've been weighed, and you've been found wanting, and your kingdom is divided, and I'm giving it away. What a shocker. Those are four words, as I said, you never want to hear spoken over you. But the truth is there will come a day when all of us will stand before the throne of King Jesus and our whole life will be weighed. And depending on whether we have lived a life to honor him or not, judgment will be pronounced. But those who have sought to honor God, it weighs in our favor and a kingdom will be given. And those who've sought to live to honor themselves, the kingdom is taken. And then lastly, the fool takes the fall. Verse 29, Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel is honored. He's made number three. He's given a purple robe, a sign of royalty and dignity. And he's made this important person. He couldn't care less, to be honest, because he's a man of integrity. All he wants is to be faithful to God. But then verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar the king was killed. Belshazzar's name means may Bel, the god Bel or Baal, protect him. Well, he didn't, and he couldn't. Only God could protect Belshazzar from God. Only God's mercy and grace could protect Belshazzar from God's justice and wrath. And Belshazzar accepts the word as true and he honors Daniel the prophet. And yet he fails to honor the God who gave the word. And I believe there's always grace in the word of judgment. And that if only he had fallen on his knees and asked God to forgive him, then things may not have ha happened as they quickly unfolded. There was some time between the prophecy and later that night when his life is ended, and in that space there was grace, but he didn't take it. It's a tragedy. God saw, God spoke, God warns. Four little words from God. It just changes everything. There's a whole geopolitical shift 
that takes place when God speaks and the nations give way to the word and decree of God. But when God's word is unheeded to Belshazzar, then the word is enacted. Belshazzar's idiocy and blasphemy will usher in the fulfillment of prophecy. Here's the irony. He drinks from the cups and says, it's not happening with me. But in fact, he is removed. He dies then, 539. Within a year, 538, Cyrus of Persia becomes the ruler. And his very first edict, which is recorded on a clay cylinder that's in the British Museum from 2,500 years ago, says that they are to return home, released from slavery, and to honor their God. And he releases the Jews, he sends them back, and he does an inventory of all the cups, and they're to go back and worship God. In Isaiah 45.4, God says about this King Cyrus who replaces Belshazzar, I summon you by name, and I bestow on you a title of honor, and I give you treasures in darkness. God honors the king who honors God. And God honors us if we honor him. It's an inviolable law of scripture and the universe. And so the encouragement and the challenge for us is to honor God with our time and our talents and our money and our thoughts and our gifts and our leisure. Honor him at work and at at play. Honor him with our successes and our disappointments. Let's honor him. Let's this be a church that honors God. Be a person that honors God. May your family honor God and may our nation honor God. Amen.